Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. As part of the WPHT speaker series, former U.S. Senator Dr. Tom Coburn discusses his book, Smashing the D.C. Monopoly, with Rich Zioli. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. Senator, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate your passion for this. One of the questions I think a lot of people have with regards to Convention of States is, how many states have to be in for it to occur? Well, the Constitution says two-thirds of the states have to call an amendments convention. So that's 34 states. But to approve anything requires three-quarters of the states. So that would require 38 states, no matter what happens. You know, remember, a Convention of States is about making recommendations to the states. It's not about passing a law. It's about saying, here's what we think will actually make us better. And then the states get to decide, mm -hmm. rather than Washington deciding. I think it's a great point. Yeah. I think a lot of people are under the impression that at the Convention of States is when they amend the United States Constitution. No. No. It's the recommendations. What will happen? Uh, first of all, there's a lot of jurisprudence and a lot of history on this. There's a concept in law called aggregation. Every application to the Secretary of the Senate or the, the um, um, I'm trying to think of the name in the House, um, anyhow, they have to be exactly the same. And if they're not, they don't aggregate, so they don't count towards the 34. And we've been very careful to make sure everything we're doing is essentially the same. That will pass that test. So once you get to 34, then the Congress only has one choice. They have to call an amendments convention of the states. When they call an amendments convention of the states, they can set the place and the time of the first meeting. But after that, Congress, only con control Congress has over that is sending of those recommendations to the states. And they have one other choice, whether it will be approved by their legislature or by convention in the individual states. Convention's only been used once, and that was the reversal of alcohol prohibition. And none of the state legislators wanted to touch that, so they begged the U.S. Congress to make it a convention. Every other amendment has been through the state legislature, which is what I would expect to happen. So nothing becomes law till 38 statement, states pass that, and you have seven years by judicial ruling in the history, came out of the ERA movement, seven years for 38 states to pass. How many states? 12 right now. So the, uh, the idea of a convention of states and it going crazy and then the, the Constitution being uprooted and all of these amendments happening and everything else, which is one of the fears that I hear from people a lot. You know, they, they'll tweet me and they'll go, now nah, it'll be a disaster, the left will get in there and they'll start putting in their amendments too. The states have to ratify these amendments, they have to approve these amendments over a seven year process. There's a lot of debate that goes into that. Certainly. Sure. Well, let, let's talk about what the rules are. <clears throat> a convention of states will operate under rules of order, Masons or Roberts or some other set of rules of order that legislators already use. So if somebody offers an amendment outside the application that we've made, which has three points, and I'll remind me to go into that, 
it's immediately subject to a point of order, and it falls. The second thing is, is if somebody tries to do an amendment that's outside of that, the Congress, the Secretary of the Senate, and the Clerk of the House will never send those to the states. Now, there's 600 amendment applications sitting at the Clerk of the House right now. Through the years, once they're applied for, unless they're withdrawn or have a time limit on them, they stay there until there's a requisite number to do that. So nothing's going to go to the state that is untoward. Now, I understand people have that fear, but what they don't understand is the U.S. Constitution now weighs 80 pounds. Did you all know that? It weighs 80 pounds. It's not that pocket constitution because in it is all the court rulings that have taken away our freedom or limited what our founders thought. Number two, it's all the bureaucratic laws that are passed every year by unelected people telling you how you're going to eat your peas and carrots. So, so we no longer have this little booklet that is very straightforward, very easy to understand. It's been totally violated by the largesse of a bureaucratic regime and overbearing courts that were never intended. The courts were supposed to be the least dangerous force. I found out they're the most dangerous force. And, and, and so the risk of anything untoward is almost zero. But let's say I'm wrong. Here's the point I'd make with you, the, one of the first points I made when I came out here. Americans love their country. I don't care what part of the country they're from, what their economic class is. Do you think that there's going to be 38 states that say you can't have a Second Amendment anymore? If you, have, if you think that, I, I have a whole bunch of swampland in Oklahoma I want to sell you. Because you have no connection with reality whatsoever. And do you think they're going to limit your freedoms? No. The whole idea of a convention of states is to expand your freedom and to restore your freedom. You know, we're not trying to create a new constitution. We're trying to restore the one that was so visionary that gave us this wonderful, greatest experiment ever in the history of man. That's what we're trying to do. So, so to the naysayers, and you can quote me on this all the way till you're at my funeral. If you don't like what we're doing and you think we're in trouble, what's your plan? Because if you don't have one and you're leading on the basis of fear, that's exactly the opposite of what our founders founded this country on. They founded our country on courage, not fear. And doing the right thing for the right way. My favorite person who ever taught us anything is Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, this is Coburn's paraphrase of Martin Luther King. Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Cowardice asks the question, is it expedient? But conscience and character ask the question, is it the right thing to do? Well, we've lost that in our leadership in our country to a great degree. And we have to restore it. And he modeled it. He sacrificed his life to create freedom as it was intended and to actually fulfill the obligations of the Declaration of Independence. And so <clears throat> to those that are, are naysayers, to those that are afraid, you tell me a better solution, I'll quit doing this, I'll come help you. But I'll tell you what, we owe it to our kids and our grandkids to create the opportunities that were created for us. And the only way that's going to happen is if we bridle down and we put, we actually put 
muzzles on the alligators in that swamp in Washington. Well said. <clears throat> Well, well, actually, we will take questions, just so you know. We are going to have uh, questions in a little bit. So, I am a, one of the amendments to the Constitution I just can't stand is the 17th Amendment. We talked a little bit about this today on the show. I think the 17th Amendment is one of the worst amendments to the Constitution, along with the 16th. Uh, there were three that were terrible, all given to us by the progressives. Well, the 17th, because, you know, back in the day, the states were actually sending their representatives to the U.S. Senate versus, with all due respect to your former profession, Senator, a bunch of grandstanders, you know, who were just trying to run for president. They were actually accountable to the state legislatures. And the 17th Amendment got rid of that. I think so much changed for the worse after that happened, Senator. Well, I, I agree that the, that the balance of power was totally disrupted when the founders' vision was ch changed. You know, there was a reason why they created two houses. It wasn't just to settle the difference in terms of populist states versus non-populist states in the Electoral College. They created two houses so that the Senate wouldn't think about election, that they'd think about what was best for the country. Even though in spite of human nature you do things that are, that are subservient to your ego, their hope was is that the Senate would be the saucer that cooled the coffee. And their whole goal was to make it hard to do anything in the Senate. Most people don't realize this. When the Senate first started, no bill could move unless everybody in the Senate agreed to it. All right? So you had 100% filibuster. So if you'd had 100 seats in the Senate at the time, it required 100 people. And what was the purpose of that? The purpose of the Senate, its whole creation, was to force compromise. And what we've seen is a total disruption of the function of the Senate because we lost the power of cloture. And if you'll remember, it came down to 75, then it was 70, then it was 67, then it was 65, and then it was 60. And so between Johnson and Robert Byrd, it went from 67 to 60. And now you hear everybody say, well, let's just make it 51. Well, you don't need the Senate if you're going to do that. Because all you have is another populist house that will do what's in the best popular position rather than what's in the best interest of the country. And it's about trusting us rather than us responding to a critical need at a short period of time, rather thinking long term, what's in the best interest of the country in the long term. And our founders wanted our Congress it to be difficult to do anything. And, of course, we've made it very, very easy. What about the argument, Senator, that some people say we can't get anything done because you have to get the 60 votes? I mean, President Trump has talked about that, saying go down to a simple majority. Well, I think it's great that you can't get anything done. You know, the fact is, is that we're safest when Congress is on its four months of vacation every year. Um, do, do, we, do we, look, look, we, what is, one of the things our founders talked about was, I put it in the book, it's called factionalization, factions, and what you see with the news media today is the division in our country in factions, and they knew that would kill a republic, all right, 
And so this tendency to want to make it easy, here's what will happen if the Senate goes to 51. Whoever's in power, boom, goes this way. Next four years, boom, goes this way. The reason this is a great country is because it's been very hard. Even though things have changed from when I was a young man, it still has been a slow change. Even though I don't agree with a lot of it, it's been a slow change. Just think if it was a boom and then a boom. What happens is you'd get anarchy very quickly because the team that's out, will, their whole goal is to beat the other team. And everybody's taking their eye off the ball. What's in the best interest of the country? You know, it's not about Republicans and Democrats. It's about American and Americans and our children. Well said. There's a quote from, uh, I think it was Madison, faction is to liberty, or liberty is to faction as air is to fire, right? Federalist Papers. So I read that to Claire and Patrick before bedtime, the Federalist Papers. It helps them. It's wonderful, I think. Term limits. Let's talk about term limits. Obviously, I support term limits. I think it's necessary to have. I never believe the idea that Congress would ever term limit itself. And for those that argue, hey, elections are, are, are a referendum on term limits, you know, uh, incumbency has incredible advantages, right? One of the reasons why you need term limits. But what to that counter argument, Senator, that people say you're, you're denying the electorate a choice if you have term limits? Well, if you go read the history of our Constitution, there was only one person at the Constitutional Convention that wanted, did not want term limits. And that was Hamilton. Everybody else said, we don't even need to put this in there. Who would want to be here for a long period of time? And of course, what they missed was the modernization of air conditioning. You know, the reason there was a summer break is the swamp was terrible, you know. So, so look, I believe term limits can be effective, but they're only if the legislator themselves believes in them. Uh, my whole life's been built on putting limitations on myself, and I put self-term limit myself in the Senate and the House. And that's a motivation because that says, you've got six years to get done what you want to do. It's also a deal saying, I'm not going to play the game to get the money to run the next cycle. You know, it's, it's about doing what you were sent there to do. So, we have term limits in our application. I think it's the least important. I would hope they would pass. But remember, we had 24 states that had federal term limits. And we had a 5-4 decision of the Supreme Court in the Arkansas case that said we don't have the right to do that. Well, that's crazy. Our founders would have said, of course the Supreme Court can't rule. You have that right. There's messing in your business on how you're going to elect your senators and your representatives. But the fact is, is they destroyed it. And Oklahoma had it. Arkansas had it. Several other states had it. And I loved it. Because what it, what it does is if you get a scoundrel in there and not a career politician, just they're gone. Here's what we lack. We lack men and women of real, learned, gray hair to be representing us. They've made mistakes. They've done the hard work. They've seen success. But they also have a vision that it isn't all black and white, and we need to do what's best. 
And I think, you know, my wife kind of gets after me when I say that. <clears throat> it's not just doing the right thing. It's doing the best right thing at the right time. And standing and being willing to take an arrow to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of bills. I wasn't real well liked in the Senate. I sent every year, I sent every senator a letter. I said, if you have a bill that's outside of the enumerated powers, I will hold it. I also said, if you want to pass a bill that's inside the enumerated powers and you haven't paid for it, I will hold it. So you got to get rid of something first before we're going to do what you want to do. And, of course, they learned the hard way is I didn't back down. So my staff estimated we saved you about $400 billion over 10 years. Good, good. We've all seen the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, right? Everybody seen that movie? The uh, famous filibuster by Jimmy Stewart at the end of the movie, throughout the movie, I should say. What about the filibuster and what about the idea that one senator really does need to talk the entire time? I think that it ought to be enforced. If you want a filibuster... You said it's then, not being enforced? I say it's not being enforced. Not being, but it should be, your senator. Yeah, it should be. You're, you're getting some questions here. I think that if you're going to filibuster, you ought to get a team of senators out there with you, and you ought to have to hold the floor until you can't hold it anymore. And either your position has merit or it doesn't. And as soon as you've lost the floor, there's a vote. But right now, the filibuster is a filibuster in name only. There's no sacrifice that comes with it. There's no cost that comes with it. And that's a modern-day uh, uh, just kind of protuberation of the filibuster. Is Kelly Johnson re responsible for that when he was Secretary of the Senate? Is that no, you? No, no, Did no, you no. do that, Kelly? Is that Kelly Johnson was Secretary of the Senate for my predecessor, Don Nichols, who was a great senator from Oklahoma. There you go. You Okies really do stick together. I don't know. That's pretty impressive. Uh, Convention of States has appeared to be picking up momentum. Can the light at the end of the tunnel be seen yet? I don't know. Our founders wanted to make it a real high bar. So if you think about, we've got to get, you know, 22 more states. Uh, we haven't had a good year this year because our biggest opposition is the scaredy cats from the right, not from the left. Uh, and so if you want to line up a George Soros and Hillary Clinton and, and, and Howard Dean and that group of people and 230 other groups that don't want to do this because they know once they do that, they lose their power, and we get the power back. The people get the power back. Uh, so we've had a tough year. I think we're going to get one or two this year at the most. So we'll probably be at 14 starting next January. Uh, but our founders put it a high bar. They, again, they don't want anything to happen fast, and they want it to be hard to limit freedom. And unfortunately, their calculation on the judiciary and lifetime appointments. The other thing that needs to happen, and the Congress hadn't done it, but you know, the Congress control the courts, except for the Supreme Court. They, they control who goes on it. But they can eliminate district courts. They can eliminate appellate courts. They can rearrange those courts. They've not done that. And if I were running the show, one of the things I would do is I'd be about rearranging the courts in the West. 
because you have the Ninth Circuit that might as well work for President Xi in China. Do you expect to have achieved success by the end of the Trump administration? And yet, where is the administration on this project? Uh, well, I can tell you, Mike Pence is for it. I've not had a conversation with the president. Um, there are lots of people that are for this. The question is, is everybody keeps putting out fire. Remember, that the, the politics in our country today have been very effective in taking our eye off the ball of what's important. It's all about Russians and and supposedly, you know, dark things. Stormy than, weather. Stormy weather. Well, whatever. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, look, I don't watch the news anymore. Uh, what I do is I read a liberal paper and a conservative paper, and I figure out what the truth is somewhere in between both of those. And um, so, but the, the, the point is, is we, if, if President Trump would say we should do this, you would see us gain 10, 12, 14 states next year. And here's, here's the other thing that's important. If we get to 28 states, you know what we're going to do? We're going to scare the heck out of the members of Congress. They're actually going to start doing their job. Because they're afraid we're going to start doing it for them. I think it's important to remember why we have an Article 5 Convention of States. I don't know if, you, if you've spoken about that yet tonight, Senator, but there's a reason it's there. And I, I think we've lost this concept of federalism in this country, this idea of this sharing of power between the states and the federal government. I also think most people don't realize the states created the federal government. I think a lot of people assume it was the other way around. You know, the, the federal government said, okay, we'll let you states exist. It's not how it happened. It's not how it worked. And you go back, you read the notes of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. They were so worried about the federal government becoming all-powerful. Article 5 has been described in a number of different ways, a gift from the framers, a gift from the founders. I think of it as a giant escape clause from uh, a federal government that advocates federalism. Well, if you... If, if you if you read the history, if you read Madison's notes, he, he documents all through the Constitutional Convention all the fights they had on everything. I mean, it was tough. It was arguments and, and discussions and long hours. And about the second week into the convention, George Mason stood up and said, gentlemen, we're, we're making a grievous error. Do you know of any time in history that a government has voluntarily ceded power back to its people. And of course, they all knew history. It had never happened. And it hadn't happened since. And he said, we must allow the states. And everybody went. And Madison records, it's the only thing in the convention they didn't have any debate over. Because they all 100% agreed because they knew it was true. So Article 5 was there. Our, what I'm surprised is we haven't used it before now. And my worry as a grandfather and somebody in my eighth decade is will we get there soon enough before the ship starts taking on water that's not being able to be pumped out? Another question of the audience tonight. How will, could you appeal to American citizens to vote the Washington, D.C. oligarchy out in this constructed, divisive atmosphere? God bless America. Say it again. How could you appeal to American citizens to vote the oligarchy out? In other words, to, I guess, 
make a change, really, well, in Washington. The, that's what we're trying to do. You know, we have 3.3 we have million people helping us right now. When we get to 30 million, and we're working on that, uh, my hope is by this time next year we're at 7 or 8 million. When we get to 30 million, you now have the biggest core group of grassroots that have ever been assembled. Matter of fact, we're bigger than the NRA, right? We have more people following us than the NRA has following them. And they're just concerned about one amendment. We're concerned, we're concerned about all of them. And we're concerned about our future and our kids. So I think it's, it's you have to do it. I can't do it. Average, everyday Americans have to t have the knowledge of where we are, what the disease is, and how we fix it. And I, like I say, I'm willing to go help anybody who has a better idea than this one. I think our founder's idea here was pretty good, and I think we need to work at this until we get it done. And I think we can get it done, but it's going to take time. We talk about the deep state, whether you call it the administrative state, the federal leviathan, I call it you know, the, the bureaucratic state. There's always a word for it, but I think it all means the same thing, which is this cadre of unelected people who make laws. I mean, they don't do it through Congress, they do it through executive fiat, they promulgate regulations in the federal register and that sort of thing. And they're very hard to get rid of, these bureaucrats, and these laws uh, and regulations, uh, they last forever. A lot of them come with jail time and fines. So what impact, if any, would having an Article 5 convention of states have on all that? Well, it, 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 the, the most major effect you can ever imagine. Because all of their job is dependent on the expanded definition of the Commerce Clause in a case called Filbert. And if you reform the Commerce Clause back to what it's intended, you start getting to make those decisions instead of an unelected bureaucrat. If you want to go to a website besides conventionstates.com, go to openthebooks.com. They just, they just outlined 200,000 federal employees whose salaries are not transparent because they got bonuses over 100,000 bucks. So, so here we have the deep state, controlled by the deep state, who won't be transparent. And I passed the law with President Obama when he was in the Senate called the Federal Accountability Act, where they have to publish all that. So some bureaucrat has said we don't have to publish it. So here's, here's the other second side of that. When members of Congress don't know what they're doing, in other words, they don't have that thimble full of common sense that you all have, and they write a bill, and half the bill says as whatever the secretary deems appropriate, they don't know enough about what they're passing to actually write the law to control what they're passing. And that happens every day in Washington. I'll never forget, I had, a, I had a fight with Ted Kennedy. Uh, I was on the help committee, and we were writing things for NIH. And he was, the, the base bill was written by he and his staff, and they had all these things they were telling NIH to do, which they had no clue to what to tell NIH what to do. So I came to the committee hearing with 50 amendments. I told them what electron microscope they were going to buy, what centrifuge they were going to buy. I said... And so I just uh, filibustered the committee hearing. Well, they withdrew the bill because they finally realized this. We really don't know what to tell NIH to do. And Coburn's sitting here making us vote on every one of these things because they didn't even know what electron microscope was. You know, 
but they're having to vote on it. So the idea that they can specifically tell, you know why they were telling? Because they had a buddy that was giving them money for their campaign that made a certain microscope or a certain centrifuge or a certain deal, and they were trying to put it in the legislation. So NIH, how about just good, strong oversight? How are you spending your money? Because that never happens in Washington. It only happens on political things that are in the news. I held 37 hearings my first year in Congress as the chairman of the Oversight Committee in Homeland Security and Government Affairs. Nobody ever. I held more hearing, oversight hearings than the whole rest of the Senate combined. You know, I actually thought you were supposed to work up there. And so we found tons of stuff. I carry it in my pocket, and I carry the stuff from the GAO in my, in my pocket about all the duplication. Let me just give you a few examples. I, I'll get, I got Prozac for all of you when you leave, if you get depressed. There are 209 federal government programs for science, technology, engineering, math, $3.1 billion a year, but they're, not, they're in 13 different agencies. There are 26, no, 82 teacher quality programs, 10 agencies, $4 billion a year, but only two of them are in the Department of Education. So, you know, if you'd like to have a copy of something, the stupidity, it, it'll just make you sick. But it makes sense. I tried to get them to re reform the, the job training programs. $15 billion a year, 49 different federal programs, and the GAO studies on it said the following. It's good at employing people in job training, but there's no positive effect from that tens of billions of dollars. So what the House do? They took three of the programs away. So there's still 46 billion, 46 programs, and still $15 billion worth of money being spent. And still the outcomes are the same. So the fact is, until you have people that really care, who actually have some real wisdom and gray hair and life experience, and aren't looking to run for the next office, you're not going to get that problem solved. That's why we have to solve it. So is a convention of states at a place? Some people have asked that question. Would it be at a convention like they had in Philadelphia where everybody's in a hall and everybody's yelling at each other and that kind of a thing? No, it actually, here's, here's what. We had an, a, a simulation committee, I mean convention, where we did a simulation of it in Williamsburg, Virginia, summer before last. And it was really very interesting. What, what the Congress will do is they'll say, here's the date you meet and here's where you meet, and then after that, that's hands off. The convention can vote to meet wherever they want and whenever they want. But what will happen, it'll be real organized, and C-SPAN will be covering it all. And it'll be tr totally transparent. You'll get to see it. The committee hearings on each of the three areas, one to fiscally be fiscally responsible, one for limiting scope and jurisdiction of the federal government, and one for term limits. Each of those will be broken into committees, and each state can send as many people as they want, but they only get one vote, and they'll go into committee. You'll hear all the debate, you'll hear all the yeas and nays, and then they'll eventually come to the floor and they'll be voted on. And whatever comes out of that, if it's within the three parameters of the application, the Congress will send to the states. So I, I think it'll be great. You know, I would have loved to have seen the Constitutional Convention on C-SPAN. It would have been really interesting because you had different interests, right? And they were hard-fought debates. You'll have that in this, too. Oh, there's no doubt. The, the drama of it would be amazing. But 
would it be by proportionality? So could California send 700 people, though? They can send whatever they want. They get one vote. This is a convention of states, not a convention of population, not a convention of anything but states. Each state. If we had 60 states, there'd be 60 votes. If we have 50 states, which we do, we'll have 50 votes. 57, right? Is that right? 57? No? It's not right? Okay. Hey, you're really up on things, Rich. I am. I'm them. trying, yeah. That was one of Obama's lines. You guys remember that during the campaign? Thank you. All right. Balanced budget amendment. I see my buddy Ed here from the Italy trip. He's an accountant. I know Keith Emmons is here too. He's a small business guy. We, we have to live within budgets. We have to live within means. The federal government does not. But would a federal balanced budget amendment actually be a balanced budget amendment or will the federal government be able to fudge it and move it around and make it seem like it is when it isn't? Well, you know, you know that's what all the states do. Oklahoma has a balanced budget amendment, but if they get in a pinch, they just borrow money for highways and create a debenture and then balance their budget. <clears throat> what this would say is you have to balance your budget and give them a period of time to do that. And I don't know the details. That's for the members who come and represent the states to decide that. But there would be a tax limitation amendment associated with it so that you couldn't just balance the budget by just raising taxes. Re remember, let me say it again, the GAO... Absolutely, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. The GAO says there's $400 billion of waste, fraud, abuse, and duplication right now in the discretionary budget with the exception of $100 billion in health care. So that means there's $300 billion out of the $1.4 billion that's being spent in discretionary money that doesn't help anybody except help the people getting the money. So that's the first thing to remember. The second thing is, is we know by studies that if we had true transparent health care with net price discovery and transparency, the cost of health care in this country would go down by 33%. I, I can show you apps that are around the country now that are being sold to businesses that have ERISA plans and they're saving a million dollars a month on the cost of things. There's no antitrust against the hospitals. The certificate of need laws are anti-competitive. They're to protect those that are there and not make them efficient. So, you know, the first thing, if we took $1.6 trillion out of health care and we eliminated $400 billion of other waste, we'd have $2 trillion. We could actually start doing something for our kids. And then if we pass convention of the states and start making the decisions at home, and there'll be, there'll be fraud, there'll be people, bad actors, but you'll have better control over it because you can't get to Washington. I represented nearly 4 million people. I did 75 town hall meetings a year, and I guarantee I didn't touch 100,000 people. Okay? So 2.5% of the state. Right? Or no, 0.25% of the state. If it's done at the state, you can actually go to that puppy and say, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to hear me. You can't, you can't hardly connect with the people in Washington because of distance, time, and pressure. There's been a lot of talk in the news lately about states who are trying to do an end run on the Electoral College. And I think, again, people don't understand why we have an electoral college in this country. Are, are you concerned at all by this movement now, by some of these states to try to uh, you know, go around it? And how, how do we restore that principle and why it's so important to protect the rights of the minority? 
Well, the whole, the whole purpose and the whole compromise to our Constitution was the Electoral College. I mean, and the, the Senate with two, two members from each state and then a populist uh, ratio for the... So if you want to destroy our country, eliminate the Electoral College. And if you eliminate the Electoral College, New Jersey might play a role in a, but nobody in the middle of the country will play any role in any election ever again, and they'll leave because they won't be represented. And so the whole idea of, of the Electoral College is to make a balance between sovereignty of states and the Tenth Amendment and, and federalism and population. And so if you look, you know, I'm in the flyover country, so we kind of look at the northeast and the west coast, and then we say, well, look at how things vote. Well, you can see if you eliminate the Electoral College, nobody in the middle country would ever have a say about anything ever again. And guess what? We wouldn't be part of the country. I mean, actually wouldn't be because we wouldn't have any say. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. New Jersey has a balanced budget amendment, but that's not working out very well no, no. for us. Let me make one other point. I'm just thinking about that. Um, and I just lost the point I was going to make. It happens. It's Don't wonderful worry. It happens. being in the eighth decade. You've been doing an interview since 5:30 tonight, so you know you've had a long. And you flew. You flew in today, right? You flew here the, today. Yeah, I, I, I was in. Uh, I can't even remember. I was in Lansing, Michigan. Left there, left the hotel at 5.30 this morning, flew to Minneapolis, flew back in here, drove an hour to get here, and I'm leaving it on a 7 o'clock flight in the morning. He's working very hard traveling the country to try to bring, yes, to bring this to light. It's true. Well, Very hard. Look, you're the ones that are going to have to do the work. You know, my message to you is, I'm talking about it, you're the ones that are going to have to be the foot shoulders. We, if we want to save our country, if you know a better way to save our country and take the factions out of it and restore the balance between the states and the federal government and also restore the balance between the three branches of the federal government, I'll come help you. But if you don't, then you got to, the shoe leather's got to get worn. Each person in here needs to go get a hundred people in New Jersey to help sign up and then they need to get a hundred. And if you do that, you know, here's the, my one lesson. Most politicians are cowards. Because if you really come at them with a populace and power, they're going to do what you want. Because they want to be there. And even if they disagree, they're going to be there. Oh, yeah. But what do you do if you have a legislature like New Jersey, for example? Who... It's <laughs> an inside joke. Who doesn't have any interest in passing this? Can the citizenry bypass the legislature? So, so, well, no, you can't. But what you can do is take the citizens of New Jersey and work in Pennsylvania and take this force of populace and grassroots and make your, make your power felt around you. You can have an impact in Delaware. You can have an impact in Virginia. You can have an impact in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's, you know, when you're, when, if, if 5,000 people showed up at the Virginia Capitol and said, we're here for convention of states, they don't know you're not from Virginia. 
So, so, and there's never been 5,000 people show up at the Virginia Capitol. So that's, that's what we're trying to, we're trying to, and here's why building the army is important. Because if in fact we get to an Article 5 convention and we get good things out that restore the balance of power, we've got to have an army to make sure it gets passed. Because that's just a recommendation. We've got to get 38 states to pass it. Yes, sir. Sure, scare them to death. Yeah. By the way, this is Rick. Rick waved to everybody. Rick is the gentleman from Pennsylvania who has the Zioli Army license plate. The car's outside if you want to see it. That's the Army right there. Passion. Uh, I, I, I see the excitement that everybody has, and I understand too, you know, this idea of well, we can't do it in New Jersey. So I like that idea. We could go to Delaware and help, and while we're there, tax free shopping. Make sure you pay it though, right? And cheaper soda. And cigarettes, right? We have a lot of people who want uh, freedom. I guess the last question tonight, Senator Tom Coburn, I want to ask. Well, first of all, let me ask the audience how many people like the idea of a convention of states? Okay, how many are opposed to the idea of convention of states? One person. How come? What's, what's the opposition? You like regulation of the federal government, yeah. It, Bernie Sanders, everybody. Let's say hello to Bernie Sanders. Uh, very nice of him to join us tonight. Very good. L let me just comment on that for a minute. No, no, look. That's a proud American. He stood up and said what he thought, all right? So let, let's learn some from this. The fact is, is he's worried that you're not going to do the right thing in New Jersey. And he thinks they need to be watching over you. That's the antithesis of freedom. The right to make mistakes is your right. And anybody in this room that's perfect, I need to introduce you to a guy named Jesus, because there couldn't be two of you. Um, so, so, so the point is, is he has fear, right? And he'd rather take what we have today because he sees the positive of this big government, but doesn't recognize what's going to happen. Let me, let me tell you, for example... What if, what the, if you talk to the big economists in private, what they're worried about. You saw here a couple of weeks ago, the 10-year got to 3%. And everybody got a little shaky. Well, why is that? Well, there's this ratio called the bid-to-cover ratio on U.S. Treasuries, right? And normally it's been 35 to 5 throughout our whole history. In 2008, it was 3.8. We then went to 3.6. Then went to 3.4. It's 2.2 now. When it gets to 1, we're over. Because what that says is the world has no confidence any longer that we can pay our bills. So he's happy with us wasting $400 billion indirectly. He's happy that we have a health care system that's not transparent, both the outcome or price, because he perceives the benefit of government regulation as more important. That's his right. But I want to tell you, most of America doesn't agree with him. And this is a republic. 
And so what we need to do is move in the direction, but never criticize those that are on the other side because they love our country just as much as you do. May not sound like it, may not like seem like it, but they do. And this idea of alienation is what the factions have done to us. That's why our founders were so worried about it. Our job ought to be about reconciliation, not alienation. Absolutely, right? Well, I want to thank all of you for coming tonight. I want to thank Rosanna Parsons. Is Rosanna here? This started with a cup of coffee a year ago, this idea of bringing you to town, Senator Coburn, and having the conversation about Convention of States. Any final thoughts? Love our country. Worth sacrificing for. Let's go do it. Thank you all, each of you. God bless you. Thank you, and we'll see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock on the radio, okay? Thank you, New Jersey! Thank you. Senator Tom Coburn, everybody. Senator Tom Coburn. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.